turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. I need to examine the ways that I have been forgiven by Jesus. I have to look at my own life and think about in the many different ways that He has been gracious to me and merciful and forgiven me. And then I I consider that and then knowing that, receiving that, being thankful for that, I want to be like that towards others. It's sad how quickly we forget the grace we've been given. Over and over, God's forgiven us when we chose to serve self and ignore His commands. Yet, even for some of the most minor infractions, you may find yourself growing bitter towards others. As Pastor Gary will challenge us in today's message, if we're going to reflect the love of Christ, it's going to require a supernatural level of patience and grace. You won't be able to do it on your own. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 6, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. So in Mark 6, verse 6, it says, Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. Very very strong warning series. So Jesus is going to dispatch his 12 apostles, and he's going to give them authority. The Greek word is exousia. This is not uh, dunamis. Dunamis is where we get our English word dynamite. That is a reference to the word power that comes in the book of Acts that falls upon the early church and subsequently all who believe and receive the Holy Spirit. You receive dunamis power. This is authority. This is exousia. This is a little different. The Holy Spirit's not going to get poured out upon all flesh until Acts chapter 2. What happens here is that Jesus divinely assigns authority and power for his apostles on a limited basis to be his hands and feet in the world. They're going to go out and they're going to be a bit of an extension. They're going to get a taste for what ministry is going to be like after Jesus ascends and goes back to heaven. And he's going to entrust ministry to his 12 apostles and to the early church, which in Acts 2 numbers about 120. And so they're going to get a taste of what ministry is all about here. And they're going to use the authority that Jesus gives them And in Jesus' name, they're going to go around healing the sick, anointing them with oil, casting out demons. That's what the next verse says, verse 12. They went out and preached the people should repent. 
They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Okay, so all of that's going on. Then we get to where we left off here. Verse 14, next verse. King Herod heard about this. For Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. So what we read here in Mark 6 is that John the Baptist has already been beheaded, When news gets to King Herod that uh, Jesus is performing all these miracles and even his apostles in this at least limited way, uh, he's troubled. He's he's stirred and and he gets report about, well, who is this Jesus and all these miracles? Well, some say he's Elijah. Some say he's another prophet. And he thinks, Herod thinks, this is John the Baptist come back from the dead that I beheaded. And what we're about to read in the verses following are kind of a, a summary of the events that led up to the beheading of John the Baptist. So this, this is what we're about to read here is not happening now. This has already happened, and we're getting a kind of a flashback, kind of like in a movie where, you know, they flashback. There's a scene. Here's the scene we're going to read about the flashback of the beheading of John the Baptist. So verse 17 says, For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. Then verse 18 says, For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath. Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. This is mom talking. At once the girl hurried into the king with a request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her, so he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. There's a very troubling scene here. Uh, John the Baptist was imprisoned by Herod because he had John been outspoken about Herod's sin that he was living and had married a taken from his brother, actually his half-brother, his half-brother's wife. And so John the Baptist was very outspoken about this and very confrontational to the king. By the way, don't ever tell me that you're never to mix the truth with politics because John confronted the chief politician of his day. And he integrated his faith 
with what was going on in the political arena of his day, and he was very outspoken to confront King Herod. So he had been imprisoned because Herod had a genuine fear of the people, and he didn't want to create a riot. And he, and he actually, the Bible says here, actually like listening to John the Baptist. So Herod may have had some inclination to want to hear the truth. You know, he didn't, he didn't respond to it, but there was something about Herod that he at least was interested. He was curious, but not his wife. Herodias was very, very angry about John the Baptist. And in fact, there, there's a key verse there in verse 19. It says that she, Herodias, nursed a grudge. Now, I want you to get the picture of what's happening here. Now, Herod the Great was the Herod at the time that Jesus was born. Herod the Great at the top of our screen here was that Herod who gave the order that all the baby boys in the vicinity of Bethlehem should be slaughtered when Herod the Great was trying to eliminate the Messiah. That's Herod the Great. Ruthless man, uh, different historians forget which one, said it was better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of Herod's family members because he didn't kill his pigs as much as he killed his family members. He was very paranoid. He was uh, perhaps a little schizophrenic, and he was, he was always very insecure about his position as king, and so he would have anybody killed. Case in point, the baby boys of Bethlehem. But in addition, he would have some of his own family members killed. He had a son killed. He had one of his wives killed because he felt like they were trying to take over the throne. This is the kind of guy he was. Now, he was married many times, and, uh, and from his second wife, he had a son named Aristobulus. From his third wife, he had a son named Herod Philip, also called Herod II in some history books. And from his fourth wife, he had Herod Antipas, also known as Herod the Tetrarch. Now, that's the Herod of this story here in Mark chapter 6. We're talking about Herod Antipas uh, or Herod the Tetrarch, who is the son of Herod the Great. That's this Herod. Now, what happens is that going back to son number one from wife number two, Aristobulus has two kids. He has a boy named Herod Agrippa I, and that Herod is mentioned in Acts chapter 12. See how confusing this gets? You need a chart. That's the Herod Agrippa of Acts chapter 12, who has James, the apostle, uh, put to death. And Aristobulus also has a daughter, and her name is Herodias. That's the Herodias of this story in Mark chapter 6. What happens is that Herodias ends up marrying her uncle, Herod Philip. Just trying to keep it all in the family, all right? Trying to keep it real. So, so she ends up marrying Herod the Philip. They have a, a beautiful trailer together. And, uh, and the, the whole work, they're drinking moonshine. And, um, and then what happens is Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, steals her away from his half-brother, Herod Philip. See how convoluted this is? Now, she ends up here. So Herodias has gone from uncle to uncle, and she's over here now with, with Herod Antipas. And when this happens, John the Baptist confronts it and says to Herod, Herod Antipas, um, the Tetrarch, this is immoral. You, you have your... Forget that she's your niece. You, you, you have... You have your brother Philip's wife. You're doing something here that is immoral. So Herod throws him in prison. Well, Herodias nurses a grudge. And this is, this is the only place, this story is mentioned also in Matthew 14, but it doesn't, it doesn't use that same language, which is a very important verse here in, in verse 19, that Herodias nursed a grudge. 
This is a key verse as a principle for understanding the potential that bitterness has to ruin a person's life. And I, and I mean several people. Obviously, John, John the Baptist is going to literally lose his head over this. But if you just look at Herodias as a person herself, she's nursing this grudge. She's nursing this grudge. Now, the Greek word, it's one word used in the original Greek language, where we have three words, nursed a grudge. It's one word in the Greek language, and it's aneko, aneko. And it's from two Greek words, en meaning in, and echo meaning to hold. So it literally means to hold in, to hold in. And it's the idea of holding in bitterness or resentment or a grudge. So that's why the NIV translates it to nurse a grudge. Now, the language there, I think, is very colorful because, you know, when you think about nursing, you know, like a mom nursing a baby, it's this nurturing, kind of coddling, and this tender affection, okay? Now, translate that in the context of a grudge or bitterness. Because here Herodias is, she's, she's kind of coddling it, and she's, and she's feeding it, and she's dwelling on it. And it's growing. That's the idea here. And it's going to be so destructive in her own heart that she's going to wish for and get John the Baptist's head on a platter. Aside from the fact that her grudge is rooted in the fact that she just simply didn't like to be confronted with the truth. That's the situation going on here. She's been confronted with truth. She didn't like it. I don't want somebody telling me the truth. So I'm going to get mad. I'm I'm going to hold bitterness. Okay, that aside for a moment, there are many different ways that we can hold grudges and have bitterness and resentment in our heart. And and a lot of times it has nothing to do with somebody confronting us with the truth that we don't like to hear. It can just simply be because we've been wronged in some way. Somebody did something to offend us. Now, what do you do with that? Because offenses will happen all the time because we're people and we're human. And sometimes offenses happen intentionally, sadly, unfortunately, and sometimes offenses happen unintentionally. A lot of times people are going to get offended and offend, and we may not even be aware of it. It it happens. Offenses happen intentionally and unintentionally. What do you do with that? Well, in Herodias's case, she dwelled on it. She fed it. She nurtured it. She nursed it. And it became this monstrosity in her heart. We only have one solution, friends. When we hold a grudge, when we harbor resentment and bitterness because of what someone has done against us, there's only one remedy. There's only one. It's forgiveness. Mark this verse down. It's Colossians 3.13. Colossians 3.13. Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Forgive as Christ has has forgiven you. You say, wow, that's hard. Yeah. The Bible doesn't say in parenthesis, and by the way, this will be easy. It just simply tells us to do that. But what does that mean? What that means is, I need to examine the ways that I have been forgiven by Jesus. I have to look at my own life and think about in the many different ways that He has been gracious to me and merciful and forgiven me. And then I, I consider that, and then knowing that, receiving that, being thankful for that, I want to be like that towards others. I, I want to be like that towards others. That does not diminish in any way 
somehow then justifying what someone else has done to you. It's, it still is painful. It's not to gloss over that, but it is to say, I, I don't want bitterness to grow in my own heart and rob me for the rest of my life because of what this person's done. So I have to examine how has God forgiven me, and now I want to exercise that similar forgiveness so that I'm not bound by any bitterness or resentment that might take hold in my own heart. See how this works. It's very important. Let me give you three verses. First Leviticus 19.18. God says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And one more, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble, notice, and defile many. Why does it say that? Because when we hold bitterness and resentment and a grudge in our heart, it ends up causing trouble to everybody else around us. Because bitter people are hard to be around, in case you haven't noticed. Bitter people are hard to be around. And I can't tell you how many times I've, I've talked with people who are genuinely bitter, and they don't see their bitterness, but they wonder why they don't have any friends. <laughs> Somebody can relate in the back there. She goes, she's like, yeah, I know some people like that. Yeah, I know. We all do. Uh, hopefully it's not ourselves. Hopefully we know enough about our own hearts to realize when we're bitter and when we're not. But, but it is so tragic sometimes to, to see people that are just holding on to a root of bitterness, they're, then they're sour, and now they just defile everybody else around them, and nobody really wants to be around them. And they think every, and so they themselves think everybody's unsociable, nobody really wants to be my friend, and I can't believe nobody really wants to care about what I'm going through. We care already, but we've heard it about a thousand times. So it's time for you to really seek the healing of the Lord so that you're not defiling everybody else with your own root of bitterness that has now grown up, caused trouble, born fruit, and that fruit is sour and it's poisoning everybody else around you. This is so critical because, again, offenses happen, wrongs happen, terrible, painful things happen. But if we don't learn to forgive as Christ has forgiven us, we will be bound by the wrong that was done to us. We will become bound by it while the person who wronged us was going to be free. And, and it should be the opposite in a sense where we are the ones free from what someone has done against us because he whom the son sets free is free indeed. And we no longer want to be bound by the offenses or wrongs of others. And so therefore, Lord, I want to forgive as you have forgiven me. And I trust you to do what you need to do in the life of that individual because you will reckon everything one day and you will balance every injustice. I leave that to you, Lord, but my part is I want to forgive as you have forgiven me. Does everybody get this? Now, again, this is easier said than done, but we have to discipline ourselves and practice forgiveness and extend what we ourselves have received because it is so deadly in many different ways. And, you know, we see that here literally in this story. It it, it caused the death of somebody, John the Baptist. And a very, very tragic story, very tragic ending to his life. Very sick story, really. You know, here, here Herod is giving this big dinner party, and, you know, half his dinner guests are, are now, you know, smashed. And, and, and he himself probably has had too much to drink, and he makes his promise without considering, you know, there's a lot of good points in this story here, folks. He makes his promise, first of all, you know, don't, don't get yourself three sheets to a wind at a dinner party. That's one good point. But, but don't make promises that you can't keep. I mean, he promised, why don't you just, here, 
Herodias' daughter, she's unnamed in the story. Josephus, the historian, says her name was Salome, but we don't know for sure. Salome, whatever your name is, why don't you dance one up for my dinner guests? And she's dancing it up, and as a reward, he promises her, what, up to half his kingdom? Are you kidding me? For one dance? You're going to give up half your kingdom? And now, when she dances so well, and she asks for the head of John the Baptist, Herod has to oblige. He has to oblige in front of all his dinner guests. And so he has John the Baptist beheaded. All because, really, one person nursed a grudge, passed it on to her daughter. Her daughter made the request. Herod granted it. John the Baptist got beheaded. May we check our own bitterness and our own resentment and grudges in our own hearts. And may we ask the Lord for his help to forgive as he has forgiven us. Amen? Amen. As we read on here, so when we come now to the feeding of the 5,000, Uh, This is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Many different miracles that are recorded, but this is the only one that appears in all four. Feeding of the 5,000, again, as many of you know, this is more like the feeding of 10 or 15,000, because as we are going to find at the end of the story, they only counted the men in the day and not women and children also. So when you include them, it's it's at least 10 or 15,000 perhaps. And it says this in verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So, please notice, he began teaching them many things. Now, I ask you to notice that because I want you to notice the order. He is going to teach them, then he's going to meet their physical needs. And sometimes I I think it's very trendy uh, in our culture, again, absent a biblical worldview, for people to get all hyped up about humanitarian needs. And humanitarian needs are important. They're good. Uh, but, But for many people who don't know Christ, they get a sense, I'm convinced, of a certain satisfaction and self-worth through all their various humanitarian efforts. I won't uh, name Angelina and Brad, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and uh, it's just this idea is if we do this, we bring clean water here and we build homes there. And, and that's nice. That's wonderful. But you see, those same people who get clean water and have houses built, if they don't get the whole package, they're only going to have their felt needs met and never their spiritual needs. So that's where we as Christians, as the church, have to bridge humanitarian needs with the good news of the gospel. And it should be in the order of gospel and humanitarian needs. Because if you feed someone or give somebody clean water or put a roof over their house and don't give them the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and pray and hope and believe that they will get saved, then they're going to have their felt needs met and still go to hell. Does everybody understand this? And this is, this is so vital. And Jesus sets this order here. He's going to first teach them. He's going to give them the good news. Then he's also going to, in addition, notice verse, verse 35. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Notice their gift of compassion and mercy here. Verse 36, send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. There's, there's a good KFC around the corner. Just send them away, Jesus, and a Chick-fil-A, maybe I should say, and, uh, and, and just go on their merry way. What a bunch of guys with mercy here. Well, verse 37, but he answered, you give them something to eat. You do something about this. Oh, 
Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the book of Mark. More than the other gospel books, Mark seems to have been written in a way that communicates the fast-paced course of Jesus' ministry, helping us realize it was only for a short time. While the book of Matthew focused on proving Jesus as king, Mark focused on Jesus as a servant. Jesus repeatedly displayed his servant's heart through the various miracles he performed, caring for others above himself. Jesus' example of a servant is something that we should be humbled by and should follow in his footsteps by serving others. We'd like to take a step in that direction by serving you in some way. Can we be praying for you? We'd love to know what's on our listeners' hearts. If you're willing to share with us, our email address is prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you, too. Come join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online, and you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you'll find additional teachings from this series in Mark and other series. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to hear Pastor Gary on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know